the benefit for companies, in my opinion, would be one, it's always good to have at least one expert in that because I don't know, newsflash, but everyone is susceptible to getting hacked. And it used to be they were only gonna target governments or banks, but now bad actors and malicious people don't care what they target. They are trying to target everyone and everything. And that's where it kind of comes back to understanding scope and risk. If you are someone who is a higher risk or have a larger scope or something valuable to protect, you should have someone who knows what might get deployed on your network and how to defend it or defeat it right away. Welcome to the Modern Tech Leaders. We will uncover stories about leaders driving innovation while also providing episodes that cover the latest trends on tech, business, cybercrime, and predictions about our human culture. Get ready to stay ahead of the game with your host Christian Galvin. I'm here with none other than Cyrus Alfarheen. He is the first lieutenant and cyber operator for the Air National Guard with nine years of service. He currently works as a cybersecurity analyst at Microsoft. His previous roles include a principal cyber threat hunter at Capital One, where we met, senior security engineer at MITRE, software developer at USSA, and technology consultant at Mural. He's also a co-host of Run the Replay podcast. I'm excited to have you join today's episode. Thanks. Man, that, that resume sounds so so much more interesting. <laughs> when you said nine years, man, I was like, oh gosh, I can't believe it's been that long. Time but goes by so fast. Nine years does. ago. How did you even get started at the Air Force nine years ago? You know, I'll be honest. I think when I lived in Texas, I think you mentioned I worked at USAA and that was my first job out of college. And I was just happy to get a job offer and excited to move because I'm originally from Arizona and went to college in Arizona. And I was so pumped to move. People who know what USA is would laugh at me because when I went to the booth during their recruiting event, I remember I was like, oh, I thought you were like the military bank. They're like, yeah, everyone thinks that we are technically, but we're not government associated or anything. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, whatever. I'll join and I'll come work for you. And the culture there is friendly with obviously the military community. Tons of veterans go to work for them. And so I drank the Kool-Aid a little bit and I was like, oh man, maybe I missed my call to service or something. And then realistically, the, uh, I don't know, the cheapness in me or the person who wants to find the best deal. I was like, how can I go get my graduate degree for free? Oh, the military, oh, of course. And that was really the motivation initially. But here I am nine years later, still going. That's really exciting. I was going to ask you, most people go to the military first and then they go do their bachelor's and then you did a little bit uh, backwards. I did a little reverse order. Yeah. yeah. You know, yep. I went in, I had a degree already. I really didn't have any reason to join other than I didn't want to depend on the company to pay for my school and then like potentially owe them years back. So I decided to pick Uncle Sam and owe him some years rather than the company. Texas had a great deal where if you had enlisted in Texas, you got to go to school for free. And it was a big military perk. And that was a big motivator for me. But funny enough, I had had a friend who was in the guard prior to me ever considering it. He was in cybersecurity. And at that time, when I was fresh out of college, starting at USA, I got thrown into software development and testing. First off, I literally 
hated coding at that time. And you couldn't get me to write anything, let alone a hello world. Okay. And, and you're like wondering, well, why'd you go into like this job anyways? Well, when I got sold the job, I thought it was going to be doing like security stuff because that's what interested me even then. And it was just software testing at the time. And I was like, man, I really want to get into information security. Like I liked networking a lot more back then. I thought the hacking stuff would be my, you know, my lane potentially. And so the military also gave me that perk. I got to pick my job and lo and behold, I picked cybersecurity. And, and I always say I got so lucky with some of the military stuff that's happened in my career, but we can get into that as we go. It's also a benefit if you already have your degree and you do go into the military because then you have a higher chance of being an officer. Yeah, you know, it's it's a fair shot for everybody, but definitely if you want to like go the commissioning route, you got to have a degree. A lot of people think you just get to be an officer right when you join, and that's just not the case, especially in like the reserves in the Air National Guard or the Army National Guard. A lot of times, man, it goes back to people. You got to mm -hmm. build relationships. And you got to, you kind of, you kind of got to do the groundwork. And sometimes, at least in the guard, it's better to enlist. You get to know the people, you get to know the work, the mission, and then they get to know you. And then ultimately you, you can really see if you want to be an officer or not. Like some people, they think they want to, they go do the job and they're like, oh, I don't want to do that. And, and so you kind of let the career play itself out sometimes, but yeah, no regrets so far. Let's see, I got some years to go. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still friends with a lot of the folks that you met? Yeah, that's another great thing. You you build a huge network. One like untapped potential or resource of just being a reservist or a guardsman in the military. A lot of people think when you think military, it's active duty. That's your normal job. You do your four years, six years, whatever you get out. A lot of the times reservists, they'll do a lot longer tenured careers because it's basically a part-time job. The benefit is the people again. You build a network. It's really cool, especially within cybersecurity. Like InfoSec is already its own community, but even then communities have like pockets of communities. And one that's a big pocket is the InfoSec like military community, right? You, you've, you work with people who maybe were on active duty whenever you go on like a deployment or a mobilization, but then even back home in your unit, people have normal day jobs and you kind of leverage that for yourself and they'll leverage you. So like I have friends that you know, work at Google, Mandiant, people in the U.S. government, all the secret squirrel stuff. And, and I have myself at, at Microsoft, you know, some of our leaders work in startup community for information security companies. So like the plethora of experience that folks bring in just on that weekend, is, it's just untapped resource. So, you know, when it's time to, to go fight the cyber fight and hands on keyboard kind of stuff, the Guard and the Reserves is so much more fun and, and a, really a different opportunity because people bring so much more experience than just what the military taught them. So, yeah, so it's been awesome. I wanted to get your thoughts a bit because a lot of my mentors and managers that I previously had are in that InfoSec military pocket. And all of them, they're always very hardworking. They always are good at mentoring. What is it that breeds that sort of culture from prior military folks? Because I've noticed most of my friends that I do get along with nowadays, they're either prior Army, Air Force, Marines, and I'm not even in the military. It could be like shared values. Is there any trends that you've seen in prior military folks? Yeah, I think there's. it comes down to a couple of things, right? Like, so people who join the military, they join for a mission, right? And the mission ultimately is defend the Constitution and defend homeland kind of stuff. So like, when you think of that, naturally, you're just already in that mindset of like, defend something or protect something. So like, naturally, information security is the most attacked thing right now, daily, you know, all the time. 
And so people with that mentality bring that kind of like, oh, I want to protect and defend this. And, and information security as a job allows you to do that on top of like core values are just instilled in you, whether you like it or not, you know, in the Air Force, it, there's a bunch of stuff. But the one that probably comes into the workforce a lot of times is service before self, integrity, and then excellence in all you do. So like naturally you're going to get guys that work hard because it's just instilled in them, whether whether they want, liked it or not from day one. The other thing is, I will say like, and we don't need to be all about the military on this one, but people are most of the time, at least in the cyber community within the military, they are empowered to be leaders no matter what your rank is. A lot of times, at least in my experiences, when you're smart and you have something to say or you can improve something or it's going to help benefit everyone else in the unit or help the mission or whatever it is, people listen and they take that seriously. And so in the normal day-to-day -day job and your main moneymaker, you can bring those skills back. And if you've always felt empowered to be a leader, like it's just going to help you do it on your normal job. And that's probably why you see that a lot and probably why your mentors are willing to help you because someone down the road has probably helped them. So that's what I'd have to say about that. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So if we rewind it a little bit before even your bachelor's, what's your origin story? What is it that got you into tech? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I would say, and I'm sure this is for a lot of people, but okay. So if you asked my mom really quickly, she would be like, when he was three, he knew how to use the mouse before like any of the kids in his like preschool thing. And I'm like, okay, I don't remember that. <laughs> but thinking about what you asked, I remember playing RuneScape. Do you remember RuneScape? Like, yeah. I think if you're like a 2000s kid, you've at least heard of RuneScape. Like whether you played it or not, it's another story. But a friend of mine and I, we're lazy. We were lazy and we wanted to kind of basically cheat the game. And at that time we had to figure out how to basically we would download a bot or something that did all the boring stuff so that we could have fun and, you know, player versus players things. But while we slept, we wanted to make money on the game and we had this bot do it. So we had to like back then reverse engineer some of the stuff. Like we were looking at Java code and like trying to figure out what it did. And we would find like the item number for gold and all this stuff. Right. So that was one exposure of like, the hacking side of things. And it was basically for a video game on the flip side, <laughs> same game also taught me a little bit about defense. Okay. In today's world, I'd say I got fished. Someone offered like some, you know, they're like, Oh, you just run this script and, and it'll get you like this super cool item in the game. And this was back in the day. If you played runescape, it had an internal chat. Right. But a lot of people would be like, Hey, add me on MSN or add me on AOL or whatever. Cause like, People had communities outside of the game and they just wanted to talk and be friends. I joined one of those stupid communities. The guy was like, oh, here, I'll, he messaged me individually. Here's this like script you run and it'll get you a thing. I basically downloaded a keylogger and yeah, he logged in my account and stole all my stuff. So I learned very early from when I think this was 13, 14. I learned how to manipulate the game to do some stuff we wanted to do probably when you shouldn't have. And on the flip side, I got scammed and robbed. <laughs> so it was awesome. <laughs> brought back so many memories speaking about AOL instant messenger. Do you still remember your handle from back in the day? Oh no, I, I don't know. I don't know what it was. <laughs> it's, it's always something embarrassing. People are like, oh, I don't even want to talk about it. It was probably like XXX, the true C XXX, like <laughs> some dumb stuff like that. But yeah, good times. But yeah, video definitely. games, the video games was my answer. I think that happens to a lot of people like around my age and probably even more so as, as kids get younger, because they're just exposed to to YouTube and videos and video games and all that stuff early on. So yeah, definitely yeah. video games. 
I think are a really good pathway in attack. Like I was big into RuneScape. I was big into playing video games since I was very young. When did you actually decide to pursue it beyond high school? I stumbled into it, to be honest. So in college, I went to college in the traditional sense of like, not to be stereotypical, but if you come from an Indian immigrant family, your parents are like, you got to be a doctor, engineer, or lawyer, right? I'm sure if you have heard any comedian ever from those origins, they always say it. So naturally, and it's a stereotype because it's pretty much accurate. Like my dad, that's all he said. You got to be a doctor. So no choice when I was a freshman in college, I went to pre-med route and I just took classes and basically hated life. You know, I took organic chemistry and this is probably a pivotal moment. It solidified a memory for me because I stayed up till I, I never have pulled an all-nighter in college, which is mind boggling. But at that time I had stayed up till about three in the morning in the library with a group of people. And one of the kids I had went to high school with, and we, I went to a smart high school. Like everyone was very intelligent. Like you had to test to get in and it's a really well-ranked high school. Right. But at that time he was like the jockey kind of kid and not to knock him. He's a great guy, smart dude. But at that time he was more perceived as not as sharp as some of the other folks in our high school class. Well, lo and behold, he is teaching me this organic chemistry at three in the morning and I am still not getting it. I got the lowest grade I've ever gotten on a test in my life. And I was like, yeah, I just don't think this is for me. Like, I'm just, why am I taking these courses? Like, I'm not trying to learn. I'm just studying to get an A and I'm not even getting an A. And ironically, I had a, I had a really good friend of mine and he was like, just come to computer engineering, come to computer engineering. And I was like, I'm not an engineer. Like, I, and I just, no, I'm not a coder. Like, that's not my thing either. So actually from pre-med, I just decided to go to the business school. And like, luckily for me, all of the electives, like if you've ever gone to college, you have your core classes for whatever your major is. You get to pick your own electives typically. And everyone tries to pick the easiest classes to get A's and stuff. And I did a little bit of that, but I sprinkled in classes that I actually was interested in. And I swear, ironically enough, every single class I picked was a prereq to getting into the business school, <laughs> except for one class. The one class I didn't pick was MIS. For, and for those that don't know, that stands for Management Information Systems. It's basically like the intro to tech class for business students. So they get exposed to like Excel and macros and just uh, just very basic stuff, but a little more advanced than the normal, like here's Microsoft Word and, and write me an email kind of thing. So that was the one class I had to take. And naturally I went into business school and I didn't even know what major I was going to pick, but I got in and I was like, oh, I really like math and I'm like good with numbers and stuff. I'll just do accounting. So that was strike number two, right? Uh, again, I was studying for courses and just not getting it. And like, I had never gotten a C in my life. And I had now was uh, approaching my second C in college, thanks to accounting. But that accounting class was a blessing because one of the kids I sat next to, who is now one of my best friends, and he was one of my groomsmen, and he's definitely a part of my life. He had a Nick sticker. And if you're watching the video, if you ever, if, for those that are listening and watching the video, I have a bunch of sun stuff. And there's a long going joke, but he had a Nick sticker. And the point is we were both NBA fans and I just sat next to him and I was like, oh, Nick's fan, huh? And that conversation probably changed the course of my career because he was also an accounting major and we became friends and through conversation, he said, oh, if you really want to get a job and be very competitive in the job market, you should add MIS as a degree. And I was like, okay, I don't really know what MIS is, but you sound like you know what you're doing. I'll just copy what you're doing. And lo and behold, 
I loved MIS because that, that included the networking classes, database classes, project management for IT projects. It did have a coding class, which I definitely, I think has been statute of limitation. I definitely cheated in that class. I had a friend help me write all the code for the last project. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but at that time, I just was so scared of code. I ended up dropping the accounting major. And just went MIS and added another degree for ops management. And I laughed because my friend who I had sat next to, he was the guy that he's an accountant right now. And he hated MIS. And I hated accounting but loved MIS. And we just like naturally like picked the, the right routes for ourselves. It just worked out. So that I stumbled into it. Yeah. <laughs> That's really amazing. This guy's awesome. <laughs> Definitely yeah, he's, He's a great, great friend of mine. So it worked out. <laughs> That's hilarious. And very interesting how you made your way back into tech after years of trying to pursue something else. And to it, your point, yeah. It's hilarious because my other friend who had said, join computer engineering, join computer engineering. He laughs, like we laugh about it now. I was like, I should have just joined computer engineering. And he's like, yeah, well, you ended up where you needed to be and it all kind of worked out. So, yeah, but that's like the beauty of college, right? Like you learn about yourself a little bit, you make some mistakes. Ultimately, hopefully you kind of find a passion or something you're interested in. Again, it goes back to people, right? Like the people in your life make a difference. And I think I keep saying that, but you can learn all the tech stuff and all that other stuff in the world, but without the people that you interact with and work with, it, it just it doesn't go as as long and it doesn't, it's not as meaningful. So I'm big on people stuff, if you can't tell. <laughs> no, and I totally agree with you. I'm the same way. Is there, have you seen people who don't value relationships and then they just totally like don't maximize their career because of that? Because they maybe burn bridges? Yeah, I was going to say in, in, in the technical career field, I've the thing I've seen is people who just dismiss others quickly and you could be the best whatever in the world, but if you're dismissing others or you're not like out like out helping or trying to help others get better, it can backfire. And I've seen people burn bridges that way. It wasn't necessarily that they're bad at the work, but they like didn't have relationships and didn't have like that demeanor and that personality that people want to work with. And so therefore they kind of like were good at certain stuff and bad at others. And ultimately like the job fit wasn't there in the long run. So and that happens, right? So that's why it's really important to, I think like one of the things when you're interviewing for jobs is like interview the company just as much as they're interviewing you. And those things, that's why like you should be prepared and have good questions. Like ask about team dynamics, ask about people on the team, ask like your potential manager, what their styles are, because you got to make sure you align. And that way, like the work, the work becomes easier. If those things are aligned, so to speak. Yeah. And I think that people definitely need to hear that. Cause I remember when I met you in person, you were probably the first person who was very honest about their OSCP experience when we were back in the office. Most people who are taking that certification, cause it's very technical and it's almost like that trophy that everybody wants. They're like, Oh yeah, man, certification's going great. I'm doing good in the labs. And you're like, yo, this one lab is kicking my butt and you're working on it and I'm learning this. And I was like, wow, you're the first person who is willing to be like, yeah, I'm learning through this while everyone else is like, oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm definitely not. I have learned, I learned early on, don't fake it till you make it sometimes. Like, yes, yes, to a certain degree, but in tech, it's better to ask for help. And there's always someone like, as soon as you say, I need help, like so many people are willing to come and kind of guide you and, and, and typically help you succeed. And it's funny because I remember that OSCP stuff. I really thought I was going to go down that route and I was so geared up to like come to the red team at Capital One and like 
you know, again, Thad, shout out to Thad. He was so awesome about like, oh, if that's your interest, in, like, yeah, let me help you. Like, and it goes back to like kind of having that conversation, admitting what I didn't know, but told him what I did know. And, and I, I laugh because that OSCP thing, it didn't work out, but you know, it doesn't work out for a reason sometimes. And it seems to be that's my career's trajectory up until this point. <laughs> I definitely do think that even though you, even if you don't get your OSCP, you could still be a pen tester. You could still be a red team. Oh, member. sure. Yeah. Let me, let me, I'll, I'll make sure that that's straight. You don't need any of that to be good at pen testing or a red team or any of that stuff. Like you said, it's kind of a trophy, but that trophy and that stigma, if you don't have it, you're not that good is kind of going away. I think like I've seen just within the industry that things are kind of changing and that narrative of like OSCP is kind of dissolving a little bit. And there's nothing to say that those who have it aren't qualified or those who don't are not qualified. It shouldn't be a barrier to entry like it has been for so many years, especially to people who may not have the funds or the resources to that course on their own, especially if you're entry level. Like that stuff's not cheap. Like that's the problem. And one of the issues in cybersecurity is training is not that cheap. So when you do find good training or quality content, I'm big on sharing that kind of stuff. So like I... I share like a ton of resources to anyone who's interested all the time. I love making sure that if you want to get involved and want to learn this stuff, like I'll definitely help you get to what you want to do. So yeah, OSCP, man, fun times. <laughs> yeah, I never did sit for the exam. I never sat for that exam. I, would, I think I was too stressed out. <laughs> I'm definitely planning on, on passing it in the future, but it's definitely one of those things where it's kind of like a cloud over your head when you don't pass it. So I'm like, yeah. right, I'll come back to it later on. There's still so many other cool things you can do in, in security. So pivoting a bit, I was doing research and I came across the paper that you published uh, while you were in your master's at the University of Arizona. And so for, for our listeners that are watching the video or tuning in, it was a great read. So I would definitely suggest looking it up. Cyrus Afarin, how do you, how do you say your last name? You can just say Afrin, like that nose spray. It's okay. Yeah. Appreciate you trying to enunciate yeah. it though. Yeah, so what, what I learned from that paper is that critical systems that control our power, water, gas, and other key aspects of our daily lives are, were vulnerable to many vulnerabilities identified by people who, with just an internet connection through tools like Shodan. Could you start off with explaining what Shodan is and how you leveraged it in that project? Yeah, so Shodan, for those that don't know, is basically it scans the internet, right? It's a big big internet scanner. And it was created by a guy at the University of Michigan. I don't know the, his name off the top of my head, but he was kind enough while we were doing, while I was in my master's degree at the University of Arizona, he was willing to share the full extended API to our team because we were doing research on, and at that time we had, we had a lab with a bunch of other students who had kind of individual research projects. And so the whole goal was utilizing Shodan data in some aspect. And some people were trying to take the scanning data and either make make a scan happen faster, segment their scan, you know, they, it was all research. And for me, I was interested in like, hey, can we even trust Shodan data? Like, yeah, it says it scans the internet all the time and it has this data that it shares, but is it consistent enough to where I can do a data study on it? Or am I gonna get some new results the next time I decide to look for something, right? And, and with Shodan, if you've never used it, it gives you very basic information on anything that is on the internet. 
like public facing. So you'll get like a basic IP address, potentially ports and protocols that are open. One of the cool things like a year before that I was there is someone had found webcams that were live on Shodan and you can you can see that stuff. So it's a fun tool to play with. And every I think every year they always have a discount code. So like you can buy a lifetime subscription for like 10 bucks or something like that. I think I have one. But for that research paper, yeah, the goal was, can I trust Shodan? Like, yeah, you say you scan the internet and maybe I'm interested in something, but can I trust your data? So I did a data study on the consistency of Shodan and it was it was interesting. I had never done data visualizations before, so I had help from one of the other guys who was really experienced in that. And I was so interested in like, oh, what is this port protocol relationship? Why is it, why does it matter? Like, because at that time I was SCADA systems. I, I didn't know what that meant. Like I was learning on the fly as I was going. And, and nowadays you hear like, oh, water supply could get hacked or electric company could go down. These are big deals. So it was cool to be exposed to that early on. And you guys pick Venezuela. That was an interesting country. Was there a reason for, for picking that one? Well, there might have been, but it was like eight years ago. So I don't remember. I want to say, I think we just like when we were looking at the data, we were really interested in like what protocols they had they had open and available because we knew like i think at that time the political climate was very tense with venezuela and then also there was an oil supply thing and we were just like very interested if they might be a target or or if they're already vulnerable or what what's going on kind of thing so from that perspective i think that's probably why we picked it but don't quote me yeah overall it was a really good paper i skimmed through it i looked at the data visualization that you had on there and i was like wow they, they really put in a lot of effort for that it was cool. I got to learn like a Tableau and we had done like a little bit of like ML model stuff. That was my first exposure to like utilizing machine learning and stuff like that. My, like I said, my roommate at the time, he was super experienced in and really wanted to do data visualizations. And so he was like, oh, let me help you. And like, let's like add some like some pizzazz to your paper and stuff. And I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, like let's do it. And so he taught me a bunch of stuff and I taught him some stuff. It was, it was awesome. Yeah, that's super awesome. And yeah, you were using Giphy. I was like, wow, I was I used that tool so long ago. And I was like, wow, that, yeah. that's really cool. Very modern at that time. Throwback on those days, man. Now, <laughs> I don't do any of that now. <laughs> <laughs> so in your previous role, you were a cyber threat hunter. And this is a very hot role right now. When I look up, like, what are the best roles to get into cybersecurity? That one's normally listed in the top 10. So what exactly is a cyber threat hunter and how would you explain it to someone that's not in tech? Yeah. Okay. Great question. So if you weren't in tech, I would tell you that it's basically an investigator, right? Like you were a cyber investigator. And the reason I say that, or that's my analogy would be because in the daily world, if you were like a police investigator, crime is happening, bad things are happening. You were just trying to go find out what is happening, who is causing it. What was the origin of the bad badness that you've kind of stumbled upon or found, right? And the analogy kind of plays through the whole way. Like you could find it on your own, just like if you're a cop, maybe you're like in the community, you see something, maybe you get a, a tip from an anonymous source, you get a 911 phone call that ultimately leads you back to some original thing. There's tons of, right? If you're an investigator, that's kind of what it feels like. From the cyber perspective, it's very similar, right? So a threat hunter on the technical side of things is somebody who's going to hunt for anomalous or bad activity on a network. And the way that someone derives, because there's 
too much signal going on all the time. So you kind of have to have a focus and narrow a scope down to be successful at a hunt. And the way you do that is various ways, right? Kind of goes back to, you could get tips. So you could have alerts in place and stuff like that that kind of triggers something to say, oh, this is interesting and a weird activity. Let's dive deeper and see what's going on. You could actually have a hypothesis originally, right? You could say, hey, how can this tool or this software be abused? Is it being abused? Let me take a look. For example, I think in the beginning of January, OneNote was a huge vector for delivering malware. And this was, this was worldwide, right? And why was OneNote the vector? Because it's already naturally installed on everybody's Windows machine. So bad actors are taking something legitimate and abusing it. So from a hypothesis perspective, you kind of have to think in that sense, like, hey, if I'm a bad actor, what would I want to abuse and go undetected? Let me see if I can look for that. And you're not always going to find anything, but sometimes you do find stuff. And that's kind of where it goes. And then the last thing is if something bad has already happened, you kind of have to track down almost like an incident responder. You have to track down and get all the breadcrumbs that led to that point. A lot of times threat hunting, it honestly takes a lot of blends from different jobs, right? So SOC analysts respond to alerts typically, and they try and mitigate alerts. But an extended version of the SOC analyst is a threat hunter. They see the alert, theorize what else could be at play, where in the network or on a system, and then kind of go and look for it. From the incident responders perspective, like incident response gets called, says, hey, we're hacked. We need help. We need help all the way through. The threat hunter is exactly in that realm of work while they're trying to find out exactly what happened in those breadcrumbs. They just don't always wait for the phone call like an incident responder does. And on the last piece, a threat hunters get to do a lot of research, like hypothesize, reading blogs, finding out attacker techniques, following things on Twitter, and then saying, hey, we see these techniques, tactics, we see these kind of blog posts. Do we see it on our networks? And that's the biggest thing, right? A threat hunter can't look for everything. A team of threat hunters can't look for everything. So like understanding scope and your environment and what's most important to you kind of comes into play too. So I said a lot there, but to kind of go back to, it goes back to kind of being a cyber investigator, if you will, with a little bit of research and your own flavor of things. But ultimately what you're doing is you're looking for bad activity on the network, ideally stuff that hasn't been alerted or found yet already. Yeah, and it, that, that was a perfect way to summarize it. And you mentioned there's it takes a lot of disciplines from different backgrounds and a lot of researching, reading up blogs. And I feel like many other roles don't necessarily do that. How do you find it that it can help if other people started reading blogs and maybe getting up to date on what the new open source tools are within security or threat hunting? Like, how could that be beneficial? Yeah, I think it's both sides, right? So it can it's beneficial regardless because it's going to expose your knowledge within the field. Take threat hunting, for example. If I read something about some Python tool that got created as a C2 framework, not only would I maybe want to go look for that, but it might stimulate my brain to think about other things that I might just naturally come from thinking about, oh, this Python tool, what else? Maybe this, this, and this. So one, it can lead to more like domain knowledge. And two... Going back to cybersecurity, it's very much a chess game. So when you read about what your opponent is doing, you can theorize how you need to plan your next move. But also, you can still respond to what their move was. So, for example, if you're a red teamer, but you know about malware analysis and detections, you know that, okay, I'm pretty well-versed in red teaming. I know what my objectives are. I know these tools, but 
if you learn how folks are trying to catch you, then what, what does that help you do? It helps you go back and reiterate through your tools and say, am I going to get caught by this thing? Or how can I be more stealthy? On the flip side, if you're a malware analysis person, you know how to dissect malware and reverse engineer things and rank detections potentially to block all this stuff you see. But if you maybe delve into a little bit of red team and pen testing, you kind of start to think, oh, this is like their methodology. This is what they are trying to accomplish through this tool. Now I know what to look for when I'm reverse engineering. I know how they're trying to evade me. So now I can improve my detections. So it's very much back and forth. You can't be I will say you can't be a SME in all of it. I mean, there are unicorns out there who I think are, but one thing I know for people who are new to cyber or just getting their feet wet, it can be very overwhelming because you don't know what to pick for your career or what path you want to go down. So early on, I always suggest, you know, obviously great fundamentals for networking, but outside of that, maybe just explore a little bit of red team, a little bit of blue team, like as you're studying stuff and figure out what suits you and what drives your passion because you're not going to be able to know it all. Like you just can't, it's just not, there's too much material and not enough time. So get good at something that you like and, and enjoy. That was a great answer, Cyrus. And when you mentioned malware analysis, why would it be beneficial for a business to start thinking about having malware researchers or someone who's going to analyze malware when they get hit with, let's say ransomware or a cyber attack? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's tough, right? Because malware researchers and malware analysts and detection writers, it feels like a very niche. I don't know how you say that word. <laughs> yeah. It feels a very niche like category of cyber. The benefit for companies, in my opinion, would be one, it's always good to have at least one expert in that because I don't know, newsflash, but everyone is susceptible to getting hacked. And it used to be they were only going to target governments or banks, but now bad actors and malicious people don't care what they target. They are trying to target everyone and everything. And that's where it kind of comes back to understanding scope and risk. So if you are someone who is a higher risk or have a larger scope or something valuable to protect, you should have someone who knows what might get deployed on your network and how to defend it or defeat it right away. And that comes through the malware analyst, because not everyone is going to receive the same sample of malware. So a really good example, I think, is when Christian and I worked at Capital One, we had a guy named Greg, Greg Sinclair. He was brilliant, brilliant reverse engineer malware guy. What really made him special and smart and who I like kind of reflect on when with, with your question is he didn't try and capture everything in malware in the malware world. He literally at that time built things that could by bank stealers and, and bank Trojans because we worked at Capital One. So he showed value in that, hey, I'm going to be able to grab what's going to target us like the first and foremost, the most important things to defend against. And I think that's important, right? And this isn't going to be for every business, but if you have people or a team or a person who knows malware, but also knows how malware might be used against you, I think that's really important because then that person can prioritize protecting your assets against that. And he was just, you know, the first example that came to mind, but he built things like the Emotet. He built a whole system around Emotet when Emotet was the hottest piece of malware going around and, and it, it hasn't gone away completely. So it's still there, but he had like red line stealer and all the banking Trojans and all that. And it just showcased like Capital One took malware seriously because 
he showed, hey, if, if I'm not here, we don't have people like me, these things will get into the network and will steal creds and run havoc through our system. So here's how and here's why this is still important. So that's my thoughts. A few comments on that response, like he was the first person I ever saw whiteboard assembly and just like talk about the heap and the stack and like, hey, this is yeah. what's happening here. And I'm like, I'm like, this man is like just whiteboarding stuff you only see in the textbooks. Exactly. Just out of his. And you know what? He was he was the perfect example of kind of some of your other questions earlier. I remember when I was studying for OSCP, I wanted to know I really did not understand buffer overflows. Like they're hard. It's a hard concept and you have to deal with assembly and you have to deal with the stack and you have to deal with memory. And I went to him, you know, and he was not a red teamer. He's not a pen tester. He's an RE malware guy. And I was like, Hey, can you help me understand this? And it was a perfect, you know, perfect storm, right? He knew exactly how to help me. And I learned it very quickly. And ironically enough, like obviously I didn't go the OSCP route, but I got into more RE and assembly stuff later down the road in life. And I just reflect on that. That was like, it got, It kind of goes back to like, why is it important to learn both sides? Because maybe down the road, you'll teach somebody something that you've learned from wherever. So yeah, it was, it was really cool. I remember that. And he pulled the whiteboard out on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whiteboards where all the magic happens. And last year in 2022, you got your GIAC reverse engineering malware certification. Can I you did. explain how that process was and how it, reverse engineering looks like for someone who may not be aware of that term. Yeah. So sure. Well, let me answer the second part first and then I'll get to the, the certification. Reverse engineering kind of falls under malware analysis. But reverse engineering is literally looking at the code and trying to understand what it is doing and making sure you have like a holistic concept of what this program file, whatever it is, is trying to do. That's the ultimate goal, right? So that does entail you know, looking at the code statically, getting down to the, the assembly level, using a decompiler, those kind of things where you're really in the weed. But but take, as you kind of move steps up, you can get to dynamic analysis where you are saying, let me have a controlled environment where I launch this piece of malware. I click on this executable or I do whatever, right? And then see how it, see what it does to my system through tons of monitoring tools and all that stuff. And then there's the static piece, like I've mentioned, where you're literally just looking at the code or you're looking at artifacts about the, the file or the executable, or whatever you're dealing with, and just trying to gather data about, about this thing and before you do anything else. So that's kind of the, the you know, 50,000 foot view of, of malware analysis and reverse engineering. It's not easy, right? But you don't have to be a coder. You don't have to be a software developer. A lot of people get really, really intimidated, myself included early on, which I'll, I'll get to here in a second, of the assembly and the disassembler and being really in the weeds. It, it can get scary because it's, it's, it's hard and it's really not easy stuff for your brain to really quickly gather and, and conceptualize. But you don't have to be a coder. Like you can, as long as you know some basic coding concepts, like you can do a lot of malware analysis and reverse engineering. And then going back to your first question about the, the, the cert. So funny enough, at MITRE, my, when I joined MITRE, I, I had joined a project and they, I was fortunate enough to go and sit for the 610 course. And at that time, they didn't pay for the certificate, but it was also drinking you know, water through a fire hose. Like I... I told you earlier that I hated coding and I, you know, I wasn't good at it. 
And here I am trying to learn what assembly is and what memory locations are and all this stuff. And I was like, what? I was like lost in that class. And then they're like, oh, we're going to get to like what a phishing page might look like and what like maldocs look like, like malicious documents and stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I can maybe keep up. And that even then I couldn't keep up <laughs> so much. <laughs> and so that was back in 2017. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I wasn't going to sit for that course in, or the test anyway. So it's okay. Fast forward. And, you know, last year I had another opportunity and I, you know, on the military side, I do work in malware analysis stuff. And I worked in a malware shop for, for a mobilization that I was on and they sent me to the course and I was like, okay, this time I'm going to take this thing serious. I'm really into this stuff these days and I'm not going to be so scared of it. And, you know, I did just that. I, I, I took it a great course, phenomenal course. I was fortunate enough to pass and, and grab my cert certification. But, but, but I want to say this really quickly because I talked about sharing resources. So I'd be, I'd be mad at myself if I didn't share this on your podcast. And for those that might get interested in the malware analysis, I, before I got the opportunity to take the SANS course, I took a really cheap course called practical malware. And now I think it's called practical malware analysis through a TCM security. If you don't know what that, who that is or what that is, look them up. They offer really, really affordable courses. Like I'm talking 30 bucks for in-depth courses on if you want to be a red teamer, you can go the red team round. They have a full course and a full certification now. And this isn't an ad, so Christian doesn't get paid for this. And I don't get I'm just passionate because I think it was such a great precursor course that got me prepped and ready for Grem that I, I should post it out or talk about it here. So I took the PMAT course, I think is what I'll call it. And I may be wrong, but look it up through TCM Security. 30 bucks. They always offer sales, but it it got it got me comfortable with assembly. It got me comfortable with reverse engineering, all the basic concepts down. And so when I went into the Grem course, I felt like, okay, I I have a really good foundation and I can build on this thing. And now I just saw that they they recently have a, a cert now. So it's like 300 bucks and you can be certified as a practical junior malware analysis researcher. So a very hands-on course too, like all the examples, they have safe examples for you to walk through and, and full on from zero to hero almost like they'll help you set up the environment. They have a really active discord. The course instructor is freaking great. He is awesome. Highly recommend it. So yeah, for those that are interested in malware and reverse engineering, go check it out. TCM security. Yeah. And TCM security, I've been seeing them a lot in the past year and the guy like CEOs like Keith Adams, he has yeah. like all these different tracks in cybersecurity. I, I, I've seen them. I haven't looked at their offerings. I might need to check them out in the future. I've only heard positive things, different people shouting them out all the time. I thought it was a great course, the great content, really affordable. I think that's the biggest thing. They there's really the lowest cost to entry. Honestly, half they a lot of their instructors put like tons of the hours of some of the courses for free on YouTube. So like you basically get that Costco sample and decide if you're gonna buy that product or not. I know Keith has put out his intro to I don't know what the course is called. Basically, if you want to be a pen tester, they put out like first 13 hours for free. And that's 13 hours is a lot. Like, yes. <laughs> so it's worth at least checking out on YouTube and then deciding if you're worth it, if you're willing to pay for it or not. And I think same with the malware course, I think a first five, five hours of that course is free. So yeah, if you, if you want it, there, there's tons of value out there. Yeah. I might need to check that out. And from talking to you, I know you have, you've had a very technical background. You're also able to Talk about it in business terms, which I think is a really great skill to have to be successful in cyber. What do you do 
to decompress, do you have any hobbies or are there any habits that you have outside of the field that you could recommend to other technologists to maybe yeah. uh, pick up? Yeah, awesome question. So actually, I love basketball, like love basketball. If you're born in Indiana, I think if you're born in Indiana, which I am, you are naturally called a Hoosier. Like, you know how every state has like their what they call their people or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, if you're if you're from Indiana, you're called a Hoosier. And so I think also just naturally you get basketball ingrained into your bloodstream like at birth. Because I, I I love basketball. If I was, if I had the right size and skill set, I would have you know done any, anything and everything to get to the NBA. And in another world, I would work for the NBA. But yeah, I, I work out regularly. I'm pretty active. I'm also part of a really awesome community for health. For actually, for information security professionals and health, it's the WeHack Health community. I got Ben Canning as my coach. He's freaking awesome. If anyone's interested in joining that, you know, for getting yourself fit and, and stuff like that, feel free to hit me up. I'll, I'm sure Christian will share my socials, but awesome, awesome community. So I, I, I lift weights and work out regularly, like five to seven days a week. I play basketball like typically two to three times a week. I coach youth basketball as a volunteer for freshman and eighth grade with one of my friends who I did meet through working with at, in cybersecurity at MITRE, my friend, John Jones, shout out to John. We, we coach youth basketball just out of the goodness of our hearts and because we love, we love hoops. Um, John my Jones wife and I, Johnny, Johnny Bones? <laughs> nah, not the, not the UFC guy. <laughs> I'd be scared to coach with that. <laughs> My wife and I even play basketball. So like, and we watch a ton of basketball and, you know, you could say I'm obsessed with it. Maybe I am, but uh, yeah, outside of work, I, I, I was playing a lot of video games, but past couple of years, but as of lately, I've just wanted to get away from the screen a little more. And so I try and go outside and take walks then just working on like self-improvement. So I love listening to like podcasts and just, just things that aren't necessarily related to cybersecurity, but like, can I can bring things back to it, but yeah, you know, travel. My, my family lives in Arizona, so we, we travel quite a bit back there. But my hobby is definitely around exercise and activity, so, and, and definitely hoops. Obviously, with the military, too, I got that on the weekends once a month. So, you know, I keep pretty busy. Yeah, you're definitely a very busy individual. Do you have a particular system or routine that you follow up to be able to track all those things? Or is it no, <laughs> I need a better one. You know, it was one of my New Year's resolutions was to get better systems in place. And actually, I will say, since joining the WeHack Health community, Ben is my coach. So I actually have a system for my health stuff. Like I track all my workouts and all the stuff I eat and trying to be really healthy and getting steps in. So I do track that. I definitely have a schedule of when I'm playing basketball and coaching it. So, you know, naturally that's built in. My work day can be all over the place. So I do stay busy with work. And then every now and then, you know, we'll plan a trip to just get away from the house and stuff since I work from home for most of the time. Sometimes I do go to the office, but not that often. So (laughs) yeah, I I don't know. I, I stay busy, but and I am working on some systems in place. Okay. So <laughs> my schedule is still very much, it's agile, right? Isn't that the, that we, yes. we, we used to we use an agile. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And we had Cal that I've actually started listening to her podcast recently and it's very helpful. Like every time I've listened to it, I ended up with my pre-workout in my hand and hitting the gym at a much faster rate <laughs> than usual. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. I did have, I do have a podcast that, you know, me and my buddy talk about not to plug that. We, we just talked about sports and stuff, but it was, it was a good time. 
Yeah, I don't know. And then uh, I guess it's family time too. I got a dog. It's good to get away from your desk because these small little tips for those who are getting into cybersecurity or if you've been in cybersecurity, you're going to put in long hours, whether it's studying, working, researching something. But sometimes that strike of lightning or that motivation comes actually after doing activities that have nothing to do with your job. I'm sure you can relate, Christian. Like yeah. you can go to the gym, you can get a workout in. You're just thinking about, can I lift this weight or can I keep breathing after this run? And then you'll come back to your desk and you might feel a new jolt of motivation and you'll knock out another task or your brain is just functioning on a high level. So you'll think about a problem that you were trying to solve or something. I don't know. There's just like so many things come after kind of stepping away. So big thing for me lately is, is having more breaks you know, consistently having more breaks, eating healthier food. That's a big thing. I'm actually, I'll share it with you. I'm starting a new health initiative with one of my good friends. He's a high performance mentor coach, and I'm just going to start putting out free tips and free health advice around cybersecurity professionals that they should incorporate into their daily lives. And I actually really want to cater it towards work roles. So it'd be really cool. Love to get some feedback from that. So maybe I could share that with you early on, Christian, and maybe your viewers and listeners can kind of utilize. Still got to get it. We're still working on it. But <laughs> once I get something out there, it'd be cool to share. And it's going to be completely free for folks. It's just, you know, I just want to encourage healthy lifestyles amongst this career field because it can be very daunting, a drain that would trickle into other aspects of your life like sitting down at the desk all the time or tons of energy drinks, which I can be guilty of at times. So. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with you. And I kept thinking of what you said, like you have that jolt of energy after you go work out or you go do some sort of activity that's not sitting down at your desk. And I would say that has played a key part into the success of my career, being able to go work out, go do some sort of activity, have a clear brain, have more energy to study. Earlier on, I used to think like, man, I'm going to stay up till 3 a.m., 4 a.m., cranking out some ones and zeros, some cyber labs, and it, that's yeah. just not sustainable. It's not. It, it's, no, it's not. And you burn out, right? Like, uh, it's funny because I just talked to one of the guys in my unit. He said he went to tech school. Your job is to study and you got to get certified for your job for the military. And his tech school was six months. And on top of that, he was studying at home afterwards, trying to learn some DevOps stuff because he wants to be in security DevOps. And he did this for six months, was amazingly successful. He passed everything. He got his certifications, everything. And he told me as soon as he got back, he was burnt out. He wow. had no desire to do anything cyber for like the next month. And so, you know, it's really important that we get more sustainable habits and patterns and systems in place so that way we can do this for the long haul because... We know, we know bad actors aren't going anywhere. They don't, you know, it, it actually, funny enough, you know, folks on my team are really, really sharp and they're really, really good at your actor tracking. And I'll share this with you. And it's kind of funny. Bad actors take vacations. They have a summer break. They have a winter break. We can kind of tell just based off of how activities and trends kind of happen. So if they're taking breaks, like you better take breaks too kind of thing. And so it's good to remind the community to do that. Yeah. Definitely, because things were not always like this. Seeing things like We Hack Health, seeing the initiative that you're working on. When I got started, it was almost like frowned upon, like being the person walking with the gym back to the office with like, your gallon of water. It just yeah, wasn't, it yeah. wasn't in the culture. It wasn't. And, that, you know, that was one cool thing about Capital One, though, is there was a lot of people who actually were really into health and 
and not just cyber at that job where, so you felt like a more well-rounded person working there. I remember a lot more people were into fitness yourself, me included. We would take lunch breaks to go play basketball or workout. I hope that trend still continues over there and hopefully goes to other places because you can get burned out and you're going to have long days and long nights here and there because, you know, these hacks, they're never stopping. <laughs> have, you, have, you, <laughs> have you actually experienced burnout yourself? Yeah, definitely. And it was, it's probably just because you work so hard at things sometimes and you still like, it, it's, you sometimes feel like you're never going to win. There's no end game to it. But like I said, I, I take time away or I will make sure I step away. And so the rejuvenating factor is knowing that I'm putting in a lot of hard work to make sure that I'm protecting either customers the nation, whatever it may be, right? Whatever the mission or the whatever I'm working on is is geared towards, or I'm helping someone. So I try and kind of keep my, you know, my North Star in front of me, even when times get tough. A great example was the Capital One got hacked. It's not news, right? It's public. Myself, yeah, yeah it's public. Myself and, and a, a few others were on the actual team that like worked. I think we worked like 16 hour days during those first couple of days for the hack trying to figure out exactly what happened. And it's easy to get lost in the weeds and burned out. But one of our leaders did a really good job of just reminding like, hey, well, big, big thanks first, he had mentioned. But just remember, you're doing all this hard work to protect people so they feel safe at home, banking with Capital One at that time. That was our mission. And that they're not worried about if their money's lost or they can't buy groceries or buy something for their kids. So remember that your efforts go towards something bigger than yourself. And so that's just something to keep as a North Star. It's, I think it's really good to have mission and have something that guides you other than like, obviously money's a motivator for this job and this career field. It's a high paying career field, obviously. And people do really well for themselves, but can't just always be about money. And that's just my personal take. What would you recommend for those information security professionals? who have been in the field for eight to 10 years, and now they're starting to work with business leaders. Is there something you would recommend for them to incorporate to their toolbox? I feel like I'm one of those people, right? And I think it's that's a multifaceted question, but a couple of things that stick out right away is those that have more than five years of experience, but I'm not at 20 yet. Obviously don't forget that you need to keep learning. Like that's a big theme in cybersecurity. And it's really easy to do when you're young and in your early years of the career field. But after a certain while, like you may feel like, oh, I know everything or I'm really good at this, but we already talked about this. There's always something to learn. You're never going to be a SMEAT at all. So like one mantra would be if you're in that eight to 10 year range, find something new to learn. Maybe it doesn't have to be exactly related to cybersecurity. Like it doesn't have to be about the malware or this new red team tool or whatever it is, but like maybe you can take, you know, data visualizations or some machine learning and something new and, and kind of learn about it and incorporate it into your work. That would be one thing. Another thing is start to maybe look if it's in your like wheelhouse and something you want to do is teach back, right? A lot of times you can learn a lot about what you know and don't know by trying to teach someone else or helping someone else. So we already have a shortage in the career field. So for those that are experienced, I suggest trying to reach out to those who are trying to get in the career field or very new in the career field and teach them something or provide value in some way towards someone early in their career, because it does two things. It helps, again, you learn what you might not know. 
It helps you kind of identify what the next set of workers are going to know and what they're going to come in with and what their approach to everything is. Because just by interacting with someone who's new in the career field, you kind of get a concept because one day you're probably going to be a leader for these people. So it's probably good to establish rapport and understand their kind of background that they're bringing to the job and the workforce and just kind of understand where they're coming from and what their styles of work and leadership and learning are. So I think that's a good thing. The third thing would be like also, you know, we can also all do for more mentors. So find someone who has more experience than you potentially in the next job you want to do, right? A big thing in getting promoted or getting the next role is you kind of already have to start doing that job in your current role because that's how people identify that you're ready for the next role. So those are the three things, right? Going back to it, just find a mentor in some role that you want to be in for your next thing. If you can and you have the capacity, help someone else, <laughs> like help someone else newer, especially. And three, like remember to keep learning. Like you don't have to feel like you know it all, but you also have every opportunity to kind of just expand your skill set. You can never add have too many tools in your toolbox in this career field. Thank you, Cyrus. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast today. What is the best way for someone to reach out to you? Yeah, thanks. I would say follow me on Twitter or hit me up on Twitter. My handle is pretty easy. It's Cyrus, C-Y-R-U-S, security. So you can add me on that. I have a YouTube channel. So if you want to follow my YouTube, it has been stale. I would wholeheartedly admit I have some intro videos and stuff, and I will get back to content creation later this year, just as I get back to things. But you can follow me on YouTube, same thing, at Cyrus Security, or you can add me on LinkedIn. We can we can DM and have a chat. Cyrus Afrin, pretty easy. But thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, Christian. I'm really excited to see where your podcast goes, how you grow your audience. I think this is really well needed. It's really dope to see, you know, Hispanics in this career field, which you never freaking see. It's really dope to see. I'm serious. I feel like yes, we lack so true. much diversity in this career field. So I'm really happy and that you, you started this initiative. I'm proud of all the things you've accomplished. So thanks for having me. It's an honor to be a guest on your podcast. Thank you. And I know we're definitely going to loop back uh, maybe six months from now, maybe a year and see where you're at. And for the people who are listening, I got to ask, who is the best NBA player of all time? Oh, gosh, LeBron James. LeBron James. <laughs> I'm, right. I'm biased. <laughs> That's where we're going to end on today. <laughs> All right. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please subscribe to my podcast, leave a review, comment, Go to thedukeofcyber.com and you'll be able to find all my socials on there. I have a YouTube channel, Christian Galvin underscore, Twitter, Galvin Hacking, and Instagram, The Modern Tech Leaders. So feel free to reach out if you want to be on the podcast for an interview. My email is media at moderntechleaders.com. Look forward to getting to know you all.